If you're here tonight, I, you are here tonight. There's no question about it. Uh, since you're here tonight, uh, I'd encourage you to, to there's a, there should be a Red Pew Bible in front of you. And, and I'll tell you this, you're going to probably be very, very bored in the next 40 minutes or so if you don't open that Bible, because I'm going to be constantly referring to it. And, uh, and quite frankly, I kind of want you to be bored if you're not opening the Bible because, uh, because I'm, I'm going to be referring to it. So the talk will make a lot more sense if you have it open uh, to whatever page was just on there. Um, what page was that? Someone can shout it out, perhaps. 1172. Um, so, yeah, follow along throughout the talk. I'll be, I'll be constantly referring to that. <clears throat> We're now entering chapter 6. In Paul's letter to a bunch of churches in the region of Galatia, which is modern-day Turkey. And I want you to remember, as we go on in chapter 6, what the primary reason for Paul writing this letter is. The primary reason is, you can't be right with God by obeying the law of Moses, or any law for that matter. His main point is, your good works, your good behavior, your virtue will not will always fall short of God's requirement. But here's the good news in Galatians. God, he gifts it to you. He gifts his righteousness and his salvation to you. He gifts it to those who acknowledge their sin and put their faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one who paid the penalty for your sin, and he was raised to give you new life. So Paul's aim is to dislodge any notion that your good deeds contribute to God forgiving you. In fact, to rely on your good deeds is actually to forsake Christ and the salvation that he offers. If you're not a Christian here tonight, that's what it means to be a Christian to confess your sin, and to trust in Christ who paid the penalty for your sin. If we don't start there, we're going to go way off in Galatians 6. As we've covered in chapter 5 in the last two weeks, we've seen that Paul is eager to show that all those of faith, anyone of you who's put their faith in Jesus, you've received the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit frees you from slavery to the law. The Spirit frees you from slavery to sin, what Paul calls in Galatians 5, the flesh, the sinful nature. You see, life without the Spirit is bondage to your own sinful desires. You know, in our our culture, we're always clamoring for freedom, right? Right? So let me do whatever I want to do. No restrictions. Let me be me. You've heard that, right? But the, the Bible says that's, that's actually utter foolishness. That's not freedom. That, of course, assumes that you always desire what is good not only for you, but also for others. Right? The Bible, and quite frankly, a little life experience, shows us that our natural desires are actually often selfish, filled with pride, aiming to sacrifice the needs of others for the benefit of myself. God tells us through his word that the human heart, in its natural condition, 
the way you were kind of born, is naturally bent towards evil. Not good. That's the backdrop of this section in chapter 6. Without the transforming, without the Spirit transforming our hearts, we're actually slaves to our own selves. That's why the Holy Spirit is so important. God doesn't only want to save you from hell. He wants to save you from yourself. He wants to transform your heart. That's freedom. The freedom this world offers is more like the cocaine addict that thinks he's free because he puts whatever he wants in his body, but he doesn't realize that the cocaine has enslaved him and it's slowly destroying him. So as we get to chapter 6, Paul tells us, since you, Christian, if you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit, now, here's the big command, here's the big command, now live a life under the guidance and control of the Spirit. And in chapter 6, or actually 526 through 610, Paul's main point is that a life lived according to that Spirit produces freedom in two very tangible ways. Okay, and that, those will be the two points of this talk, which you should see if you have your worship program, the notes are on there. First, the Spirit frees us to care for one another as the community of Christ. Second, the Spirit frees us just to do good, especially in the context of others. So first point, in chapter 5, verse 26 through 6, Six. Paul's making this claim. The Holy Spirit frees us to care for the community of Christ. And that's the church. The Holy Spirit frees us to care for the community of Christ. You may have noticed that I slightly adjusted the passage this week to include chapter 5, verse 26, which I think actually begins this section, okay? Let's read it. Verse 26. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying one another, John Stott, the the well-known British pastor, says this. This is a very instructive verse because it shows us that our conduct towards others is determined by our opinion of ourselves. Sometimes you think, oh, you know, whatever, I can think whatever I want, and that doesn't affect others. And this passage blows that out of the water. What you think about yourself is the primary thing that affects how you relate to others. The Galatian churches were susceptible to pride. And the word translated conceit here, we don't often use. It's more of the understanding of it's someone who's desperate for recognition, someone who's desperate for the approval of others. If you're desperate for recognition from others, if you're desperate to feel perceived as significant, then what you're going to do is you're going to provoke those who you feel are inferior to you, or you're going to ignore them or remain aloof to them because they can't give you anything. They're insignificant. They're, they're, they're inferior to you. Or for those who you think are superior to them, you're going to envy them. And that's what's happening in verse 26. Pride is like a virus that destroys relationships. Notice what Paul said in the previous chapter, 5 
15. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So pride is the enemy of caring for one another. But Paul wants to give us a blueprint for living by the Spirit as a community. And the first thing he wants us to know is that we care for one another by taking each other's sin seriously. Verse 1. Verse 1, read with me. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. The previous chapter, okay, 5, that was what we just heard from, reminded us that the Christian life is one of constant conflict between the flesh, the sinful desires, and the Spirit. Well, in this spiritual battle zone that we call the Christian life, it's inevitable that the individuals will get caught up in sin. And when that sin is clear, when that sin is visible, when that sin is tangible in any way, it cannot be ignored. What I want you to understand is the church is God's designed mechanism to help untangle you from sin that aims to destroy you. The church is God's mechanism to restore your relationship with God and with others. Notice in verse 1, he says, you who live by the Spirit, or some translations say, you who are spiritual. This doesn't mean that this is the job of the spiritually elite in the church, okay? Restoring a fallen sinner is the responsibility of anyone who has the Spirit. That's every Christian. That's every member of this church. To gently confront sin, to admonish one another, to encourage someone to endure in the faith, to restore someone who is entangled in sin, friends, is not exclusively the job of the elders or ministers. It's not the job of the older Christians. It's not the job of those people, merely, who have been longtime members. It's everyone's job in the local church. If you are a member of this church, it is your responsibility to care for the spiritual well-being of your church family. And even, it's your responsibility to address sin. Not in order to judge someone, but to help restore them and to encourage them to reflect this, to, to reflect this kingdom that we're supposed to live out. Paul gives a warning at the end of verse 1, though, doesn't he? But watch yourself. You, you who would restore your brother, you know, who, you who are going to address sin in other people, watch yourself, or you also might be tempted. The person who addresses, addresses sin in another person has to be keenly aware that they are as susceptible to the sin as this other person. You cannot try to address someone's sin and have any kind of moral superiority about you. If you don't do it from a posture of humility, you're actually in worse position than they are. You must do it with gentleness, the text says, with, and with the aim of restoration. Friends, it's, it's not easy to address sin 
with one another. And partially, it's difficult because it requires two characteristics that we don't often put together, right? Boldness on the one hand, takes a bit of boldness, and gentleness, courage, and humility. But let me tell you this, it's not loving to ignore sin. It's not loving to ignore sin. In fact, to stand aloof or ignore your brother or sister who is in sin is really just a form of pride because I can't be bothered. My time can't be bothered to address this. My time's too important. But I want to kind of flip the script here. Addressing sin is difficult because we aren't the kind of people, often, we aren't the kind of people who allow others to critique and confront us. Honestly, if you never invite someone to speak into your life, you'll probably find that people just won't do it. That's what I found. And it's only to your detriment. Yes, someone points out your sin and says, listen, Luke, this has to stop. And and how can I help? That's incredibly painful. That doesn't feel good. It's embarrassing. It can feel invasive, especially nowadays. Don't talk to me about my life, right? But Paul says it's for your spiritual good. In fact, it's for your spiritual survival. So you want a very tangible application from, from this service today? Ask yourself if you have any relationships in this church that you would feel open enough to discuss your sin struggles. If you don't have that kind of relationship, find them. You're missing out on one of the greatest purposes for the church. Secondly, we care for each other in in this passage by bearing one another's burdens. And we see that in verse 2. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. The burden of sin is still in view here, but Paul broadens the scope of this command by saying Christians should carry all kinds of burdens for one another. I love how Tim Keller explains this verse. He says this, A burden is like a heavy load that you, you can't carry on your own, right? So when you're moving house and you have the, the big dresser, you can't, you can't move, it weighs 100 pounds, what you need is a friend to come over and bear some of that load for you. Now, instead of lifting 100 pounds... You're only lifting 50 because your mate has taken the other 50 pounds on himself. Keller's point is that there is no bearing burdens in the community of Christ, okay? That doesn't require you to take someone else's burden on yourself. Meaning bearing burdens of one another will cost you something. It takes genuine sacrifice. You will now be under a burden that you otherwise would not have been under. But you do it so because you know that together you can bear up under some hardship that alone they couldn't bear. Paul says this is how you fulfill the law of Christ. This is, this is what Paul said in, in chapter 5, verse 14, other side of the page. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, okay? This is big. This, he's quoting Jesus here. Love your neighbor as yourself. 
Friends, you want to know what the sum, what, what the epicenter, what the core of Christian devi- uh, devotion and obedience is? Love your neighbor. Okay, love your brother. And Paul says, you want to know what it means to love your brother? Carry their burdens. And what does that look like? What is carrying their burdens like? Okay, this, is like this is the center of Christian living. What does it look like? Well, not ignoring their sin, but gently restoring them. It means financially providing for someone who lacks material goods. It means providing emotional and practical care for each other during a tragedy or a trial. It means providing hospitality and your own time for someone who's lonely and discouraged. That's the business of the church. Yes, the life of the church revolves around our weekly gathering, what we're doing right now for one or two hours each week. Without that, we wouldn't have a church, right? But that daily bearing of burdens is the... That's the life of the church. You know, sometimes people will come, you know, especially to ministers, right? They'll come to me and saying, listen, I, I want to get involved. I want to serve in the church, all right? And, uh, and usually what they mean is, what ministry can I sign up for to be involved in? And, 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 and quite frankly, we've got tons. But w- what I want to tell people is, how can I serve? You do that. You, you bear the burdens of one another. You have someone over for coffee, and you get to know, you get to know them so much so that you know when there's actually a problem. You care for someone who's sick. You have people over for a meal. You sacrifice your time for others. You give. You meet people's financial needs. There's practicals after, uh, practical uh, acts of service. There's praying together. There's having meals together. Serving in the church isn't some kind of finding some magical ministry to be involved in. It's just that. That's that's the ministry of the church. Open to anyone. You don't need to sign up for any ministry to do that. Keep your eyes open to needs and, fill, and fulfill them and serve them and bear one another's burdens. That's also going to require that you know people well enough that you actually know their burdens. All of that stuff can't happen in the two hours we meet here, though. It should start here. This is the kind of launching pad for all that ministry. But friends... Being part of the church, commitment to the church, is so much more than just the two hours we meet here. This is also why you'll hear me and the other ministers keep banging on about commitment to a church. What we call membership, which is just really formalized commitment. Because you can't really obey this command without a concrete body of people with whom you are committed to carrying out these commands. Historically, many churches have adopted covenants that everyone agrees to when they become members. And in fact, the church I came from in the U.S., we had a church covenant. It's kind of like a marriage covenant where there's a list of vows that we say to one another. It's a list of promises that we promise to keep with regard to the rest of the church, and the rest of the church agrees to keep with us. Something I really loved that our church would, would do is we'd all stand and collectively read aloud 
so we could hear each other's voices, our covenant, these promises to one another. We did that every time we took the Lord's Supper, and we did it before our members' meetings. And I want to show you this is what we'd say to one another. Let's see. I'll just read the, the first half. I'm not going to read the whole thing. We'd say this together. Since we trust that God has moved us by his grace. There's some antiquated language here, but whatever. God has moved us by his grace to embrace Jesus Christ as Lord. And by the Holy Spirit, we give ourselves up to him. So we do most solemnly covenant with each other. That God enabling us, we will walk together in brotherly love. That we will exercise a Christian care and watchfulness over each other and faithfully warn, rebuke, and admonish one another as the case shall require. That we will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, nor omit the great duty of prayer both for ourselves and for others. That we will participate in each other's joys and endeavor with tenderness and sympathy to bear each other's burdens and sorrows. It went on, but we'll stop there. By constantly repeating this as a church together, it was as as if our job description as church members was just etched into our minds. No one could kind of wiggle away from the church thinking that being a Christian was just about showing up on a Sunday and forgetting about everybody else the rest of the week. Sure, that's where commitment starts, but our commitment is to the lives of one another. Verse 3. If anyone thinks they are something, when they are not, they deceive themselves. In the Greek here, there's a for, because, at the beginning of this verse. So, how is pride, thinking you're something when you're nothing, the reason for people not bearing one another's burdens? That seems an odd. Your pride is keeping you from bearing one another's burdens? It's because if you think you are great stuff, you won't think people are significant enough to deserve your time and your interest. And if you think you're great stuff, you won't think you need other people to help you with your problems. Pride is the enemy of this kind of spirit community. In verses 4 and 5, he kind of takes a quick detour and a quick parenthesis. Yet your responsibility for one another doesn't eliminate personal responsibility. He wants to make this very clear. Read with me in verses 4 and 5. He almost sounds like he's, he's contradicting himself right here. Each one should test their own actions. They can take pride, then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to one another, to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. These verses, at first, seem to be a total contradiction of what Paul was just saying, don't they? So what's going on here? I'm going to summarize it really quickly. If you have a a question about this section, just come see me afterwards. Paul is trying to strike a delicate balance here. As much as your spiritual growth occurs not in isolation, but in community... When you stand before God, you can't blame others for your sin. We can't fall prey to the victim mentality that 
that we often feel even in our own day that says all my problems are the faults of other people. Of course, all of us are shaped by the context we find ourselves in. Our families, our culture, our schools, our friends, they all have a tremendous shape on who we become. But Paul says that one day, friend, you are going to stand before God on your own. And you can't say to God, but my my parents failed me. My education failed me. My friends failed me. No, Paul says. Although you need the church to endure in the faith and grow in the faith, at the end of the day, before you go on examining others, start by examining yourself. Because you're going to stand before God by yourself one day. So the Holy Spirit frees us, one, to, to care for one another, okay? He frees us from selfishness to care for the community of Christ. And secondly, the Holy Spirit frees us to do good. Frees us to do good, especially in the context of to other people. Verse 7 begins somewhat abruptly. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. He means, don't fool yourself into thinking that you can fool God. That's what he means. Don't fool yourself into thinking that you can fool God. Specifically, don't fool yourself into thinking that you can trick God into giving you eternal life while spending your entire life devoted to the things he hates. No, Paul says there's this divine principle at work in the world where what you sow, it's an agricultural reference, you know, sowing seeds that grow. What you sow, you're going to reap. Like the farmer who sows pumpkin seeds, if he expects to get watermelon, you'd call that man a fool, wouldn't you? It's ridiculous. You sow pumpkin seeds, you're getting pumpkins. And Paul says, likewise, you sow to your sinful nature, going to reap destruction. Paul's point is that the content of your life matters to God. Becoming a Christian is not an I can get to heaven and live whatever way I want kind of religion. If If that's kind of what you think about Christianity, Paul wants to blow that version of Christianity up in your mind. Paul says something very daring in verse 8. Whoever sows to please their flesh, that's their sinful nature, okay? From the flesh will reap destruction. But whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. He's saying the content of your life reveals the destiny of your life. Let me repeat that. The content of your life reveals the destiny of your life. The whole letter makes it clear that the content of your life, how you live, doesn't produce eternal life. But friend, this is a very serious warning. If you spend your life sowing, investing in, feeding your sinful desires, then brothers and sisters, you will have no part in God's kingdom. 
Some people have said to me, Luke, Christianity is a farce. Because at the end of the day, as long as you put your faith in Jesus, you can live whatever way you want to and go to heaven. That's why everybody loves it. Seems like a good deal. Hey, you can do whatever you want your whole life and still go to heaven. Who wouldn't want, who wouldn't sign up for that? Doesn't matter if you, I can cheat on my wife, I can cheat my neighbor, I can, I can murder someone if I want. And it doesn't matter. Because Jesus forgives, regardless of what I do. Paul says unequivocally no to that. God does not save you so that you can live whatever way you want without consequences. God saves you so that you can do good works. Meaning you can't do them apart from God's transformation. The content of your life matters to God. The way you live doesn't produce your salvation, but it does reveal your salvation. It reveals what kingdom you're living in, okay? The kingdom of Christ that exists visibly in the church and one day will physically reign on earth, or the kingdom of this world which is corrupt and is heading towards destruction. The content of your life reveals which kingdom you're in. And Paul, in chapter 5, gave us a picture of what kingdom life looks like in either of these kingdoms, all right? In chapter 5, 19 through 21, this is what kingdom life looks like in not Christ's kingdom, in the world. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, Fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and and things like this. But what does life in God's kingdom look like? Verses 22 and 23, chapter 5. Love, joy, peace. Bearing with one another, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those are two radically different pictures of kingdoms. Paul is saying a very direct word. You sow to the kingdom of this world. You invest in the evil desires of the kingdom. You feed your sinful desires over and over and over again. Your destiny is going to be destruction. But if you sow to the kingdom of Christ, you invest your heart in the characteristics of Christ's kingdom. You feed on the spiritual desires. Your destiny is going to be eternal life in Christ's kingdom. So, verses 9 and 10. Don't give up the fight to do good. Don't give up the fight to do good. This is an incredible task. Paul gives us fresh encouragement in verse 9. Let us not grow weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest, eternal life, if 
we do not give up. Last week, some of us leaders were at a <coughs> conference in Turkey, and we heard from Thabiti, who preached last week for us. And, and, and Thabiti exhorted us as leaders not, he, he says, often we neglect to teach and even insist on doing good. Christ redeemed us, not just to get us out of hell. He redeemed us to make us into new creations that are deployed in the world to do good. God saved you so that good deeds would just radiate from your life. So friends, take joy, not pride, but take pleasure in doing good things for other people. Maybe we should just spend more time reading and reflecting over the fruit of the Spirit and strategizing how those characteristics can be deployed in our life to others. How can we better love? How can we be more joyful? How can we bring peace to ourselves and to others? How can we patiently bear with difficult people and difficult situations? How can I be more gentle with the broken people around me that I encounter? What kindness can I show to others? What good things can I do for others? What areas in my life do I need to demonstrate self-control so I don't oppress others? Christ was crucified on the cross. He was raised and he sent his spirit so that you can live that kind of life. Now don't grow weary. You will receive eternal life if you don't give up, he says. The Christian life is not a hundred meter dash. It's a marathon. And friends, because it's a marathon, it doesn't matter if you fall, get caught up in sin. Everyone will. What matters is that you don't quit. Don't say, I've, listen, Luke, I've tried Christianity and it just doesn't work. I can't do it. I'm giving up. You might be thinking right now, I've given this marriage a shot. <laughs> Luke, I've tried to stop watching pornography. I've tried to stop yelling at my kids. I've tried to avoid that overpowering jealousy for someone else's life. I keep on falling. I keep on failing. And I'm just going to give up fighting. Paul says, don't grow weary. In this marathon of the Christian life, first of all, the finish line has already been won by Christ. Okay? And you're not in the race alone. When you commit to a church, you have other Christians who are now committed to you. 
and joining you in this race. To pick you up when you fall. To encourage you when you're weary. To bring you back on course when when you've gone off course. To love you when you're broken. To pick you up when you have nothing left at all to give and literally carry you to the end. Are you beginning to get a taste for how important the local church is to your spiritual survival? God created the church so that you'll be at the finish line. Friends, when you are deep in sin, when you are caught deeply in despair, don't run away from the church. What? Lean into it. It's your lifeline. Friends, when you're sick, you don't hide from the hospital. When you're deathly sick, you you go to the hospital as quick as you can. This is the hospital for your soul. Right here. You run to it when you're sick with sin. Verse 10. Therefore, because of all this, as we have the opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. I want you to hear this. We focus on the gospel of Jesus Christ here at REC. I hope you hear it in the the sermons we preach, in the songs we sing, in the way we talk, in the way we pray. We focus on the gospel. That we can do nothing but reject our sin and rely on Jesus to save. No good works in us could ever earn God's favor. We're so far from that. Jesus has provided everything we need for salvation. We focus on that message Not because we think that a life of virtue doesn't matter. No, we focus on that message because we believe trusting in the gospel is the only path to live a life of virtue. Paul here in this last verse sets up a kind of hierarchy of personal responsibility for the Christian towards others. Elsewhere, Paul says, your first responsibility in terms of caring for one another, financially is is primarily his concern at this point, but it's broader than that. Your first responsibility is to your family. He he says that in 1 Timothy 5.8. You don't need to turn there, but I'll just read it. Anyone who doesn't provide for your relatives, especially for their own household, has denied the faith. Of course, given that you have the ability to do that, right? Beyond your family, then, you have a responsibility to provide for your church family, as you see here. Those Christian believers that you have committed to. And again, this is another reason. We here at REC strongly urge you not to float in and out of different churches. We want you, finally, to commit to one church because the scope of your responsibility is staring you in the face. can't just say, I love, love, love God's people. He, he wants you to have people with real faces in front of you, 
Finally, and Christians, we must remember this. You know, we, we can't meet the needs of every person in the world. That's obvious. But as we have the opportunity, we should do good to all people. The all here means all people without, uh, without distinction, regardless of age, race, ethnicity, wealth, gender, social standing. All people we should do good to. Friends, if you're the kind of person who sees someone in need and immediately begins prosecuting them with regard to their condition, they could have done X, Y, or Z in order to be not in that position. I I hope you feel the tug of this passage. It doesn't say, do good as long as they've made all the right decisions. It doesn't say, do good, as long as they deserve it. It says, do good, as you have the opportunity, to all people. Full stop. Let's be people busy with doing good for others. After all, Peter tells us in his letter, live such good lives among the pagans that although they accuse you of doing, of wrongdoing, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Let's conclude. I love beautiful buildings. I love grand architecture that you see. It's one of the greatest things about being over here in England. There's beautiful architecture all over the place. I get a sense of awe and wonder every time I walk into a Gothic cathedral with ascending pillars and, and, uh, and pointed arches and flying buttresses. But that's not God's vision for displaying His glory and His beauty to the world. God displays His beauty and His glory and his majesty and his significance through little communities, churches, who have been transformed by God's kingdom and reflect God's kingdom. Listen, the the ancient world, okay, was turned upside down by early Christian churches. And how did Christianity, quote-unquote, conquer Rome, ancient Rome, the epicenter of power and paganism in the ancient world? Well, I'll let the last pagan emperor of Rome tell you himself. Writing to a pagan priest, Julian, called the apostate, not from Christianity, but Julian the apostate, said this to a pagan priest. When it came about that the poor were neglected and overlooked by the pagan priests, then I think the impious Galileans, that's the Christians, okay, observed this fact and devoted themselves to generosity or philanthropy. To another priest, he wrote this. They, the Christian, the churches, support not only their poor, but ours as well. All men see that our people lack aid from us. There's, there's more. We could go on and on and on and on. 
but humble, yet radiantly loving communities. Communities that bear up under their own and also care for those outside of them. That that caught the attention of the most powerful man on earth. It's not going to be, friends, our impressive buildings, as beautiful as we love them. It's not going to be our slick events. It's not going to be our intellectual achievements that will transform this world. It's going to be our simple but supernatural care for one another. And it's going to be our simple but supernatural acts of goodness combined with gospel preaching that will transform this world in ways upside down they're not expecting.